What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I'm joined by Joe Burnett. We get into the Bitcoin market, Bitcoin mining, overall macro, econ, and much, much more. So tune in for another action-packed episode. And I have a grand announcement for the GC fans out there, a brand new sponsor. So tune in here in the next few minutes to get that. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It's strictly the opinion of Joe and myself now. Let's get into the episode. Whoosh. I'm going to be uh, covering everything from Bitcoin and the overall macro environment and much more. But first, I want to give a very shout out to my brand new sponsor. I'm wearing the shirt. It's Pleb Lab down in Austin, Texas. So if you haven't checked out Pleb Lab, they're a co-working developer space down in the heart of Austin, Texas. But if you're not in Austin, they've got a very special deal for you. It's called the Nomad Pass. So you get access to all their internal communications. You'll get updates from their private events, which they will live stream and uh, you know post some content about that as well. And when you're in town, you'll get access to the facility. So they have some great developers there. Super Testnet, Toshi, Topher, all those guys. I had them on this on the program all during um, that live stream week when I was there for Satsby. They have a lot of great projects going on in there. So if you're a developer or an aspiring developer in the space, go ahead and get the Nomad Pass. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain that will help you out tremendously on your goals to Work maybe in the Bitcoin space, so be be sure to check them out. And then lastly, shout out to Coddle.co. That's the punch plates. So if you're looking to get your Bitcoin off an exchange and st- sh- store your seed phrases in a very special location, uh, be sure to uh, use a punch plate from Coddle.co and use that promo code GREENCANDLE. So shout out to Pleb Lab and them. I'm really excited to be partnering up with them. Uh, so it's a, it's a great opportunity for me, and I'm really excited. So uh, big shout out to Car and all the guys down there in Austin. That was a bit. That was a lot for me. So I got a very special guest here in the waiting room. I got Joe Burnett of Blockware. Joe, how you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. I had to t- tough it out. I guess I was hearing my own voice for for uh, <laughs> a little bit there, so I apologize about that. But uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining me. For those who don't know much about you. Why don't you give us a little spiel on uh, who you are and how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. So Joe Burnett, I'm the head analyst and product manager at Blockware Solutions. Uh, Blockware Solutions is you know, one of the largest Bitcoin mining companies, one of the largest Bitcoin ASIC brokers in North America. We, we recently launched the Blockware Marketplace where retail and institutional clients can go and buy and sell hosted Bitcoin ASICs. So my role at Blockware, again, is, is head analyst and product manager. Head analyst is more on the media and research side of Blockware, where we'll do you know, a weekly newsletter, we'll do a podcast, we'll publish long-form research reports. For example, we published one with Riot Platforms, we've published one with Satoshi Action Fund, and we've got many more in the pipeline as well. Um, the other side of my, my, my job is being a product manager. So working on the Blockware marketplace and making it easy and simple for people to buy and sell hosted Bitcoin mining rigs. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. But uh, that's kind of a little bit about me and a little bit about my role at Blockware. Yeah, that's great stuff. But you have to tell us how you got there, man. Tell us about the orange pill story and kind of how you got started with Blockware. Yeah, absolutely. So... I love always hearing and talking about people's, you know, how they got into Bitcoin. So interesting. Um, My Bitcoin story started back in 2017. I was in undergrad then. And I remember somehow getting subscribed to like Bitcoin and like crypto on on like Reddit um, and just kind of like casually seeing that every day when I was in undergrad and scrolling through Reddit. Um, and, and the interesting about 2017, interesting thing about 2017 was the price of Bitcoin just kept going up, right? And I mean, it started the year maybe around $1,000 or a little less than that. Then, you know, went to 2000, then went to 3000, then 6000, and then finally like 18, 19,000 at the end of 2017. And I remember watching it, you know, all throughout the year and just being like, what is this 
asset Ponzi scheme thing? Like, what could this possibly be? Because I'd, I'd kind of been raised as like more of a value investor type person, um, like buy IBM, S&P 500, buy Coca-Cola, buy these like traditional stocks that have been around for 50 years that, you know, don't go up, you know, 10x very fast by any means, but they pay, you know, a safe, steady dividend. They, you know, weather all the, the tough storms that, you know, have, have occurred over, the, you know, 50 plus years. And so seeing Bitcoin, I was like, what the heck? How can this thing go up 10x in one year or 20x in one year? This is so bizarre. So I spent the 2018, 2019 bear market really diving deep into like, okay, you know, I don't really know exactly what's going on here. I do know that this, you know, industry, crypto or specifically Bitcoin, obviously at, at this point, um, is there's something here. Like nothing goes up 20x and it's just like completely worthless. I like I felt like there had to be something there. And so 2018, I started to dive deeper into Bitcoin. I was like, okay, what makes Bitcoin special? Like, is Bitcoin different from these other crypto assets or crypto Ponzi's, whatever? And then the answer, in my opinion, was yes, Bitcoin is very different. Um, and so I really dove deep into Bitcoin. Um, and I was like, okay, I don't need to be buying, you know, Ethereum or any of this other crypto stuff. Bitcoin's the true innovation here. And basically just became, you know, full on, you know, Bitcoin maxi uh, by the end of 2018. Yeah. So then uh, I guess uh, while you were an undergrad, then, um, you know, what were you kind of majoring in studying? And then, you know, why the decision to just go like all in on the on the Bitcoin industry? Yeah. So in undergrad, I was studying management information systems and I was also studying minor. My minor was computer science. So kind of that business background with like going into tech. Um, and I felt like that was kind of a good spot for, for Bitcoiners. And I was always very like freedom minded as an individual. Like I, I thought that, you know, people should strive or like communities and countries should, should strive for freedom, I guess, over safety, if that, if that's kind of like the, the balancing scale. And so being interested in finance, being interested in business, being interested in technology and being interested in freedom, I felt like I was very like predisposed to like understand Bitcoin or be one of the people that like, you know, saw it and didn't immediately dismiss it. Or like if I spent like, you know, just enough time looking into it, I would have like been very interested in, in that topic, um, which makes sense. Um, so I, I studied that and then that just kind of really led me down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I mean, I did like a lot of traditional like internships in college that every college college student does worked like a little bit in the uh, the real world, I guess, per se. And then, you know, during college, during graduate school, like worked part time at Mimesis Capital, which is a family office focused on uh, Bitcoin venture, venture investing. So kind of got my my foot in the door of, of the Bitcoin space through Mimesis. And then after that, worked at a, worked at a real job uh, for for a little bit while as a technology consultant and then realized like, hey, like the opportunities in Bitcoin, my passions in Bitcoin Bitcoin is like the coolest, you know, technology I've ever played with. I need to work Bitcoin full time. And so that led me to Blockware. Yeah, that's awesome stuff, man. But, uh, you know, you, you've kind of been, I guess, in around the financial markets um, and, you know, it, it hasn't exactly been the easiest time. Right. <laughs> I mean, like while you're in grad school, it's like almost like a decade long plus of just, you know, straight up from 2010 ish to like 2019 2020 time obviously then we had the the covid <laughs> crash the covid run up and now we're kind of you know floating in no man's land so uh talk a little bit about that experience like kind of working in finance during all this uh you know i guess crazy covid times yeah i mean it has been a very unique time period right i mean i feel like since 1980 uh when interest rates were, were very high we've just seen like interest rates continuing and that like very steady downtrend up until like basically last year of, of like super easy monetary policy. Right. So like, I feel like investing has been on easy mode for 40 plus years at this point. And now we're potentially at a turning point where to create real alpha in the market or to generate real returns, you can't just like, sit on your hands and buy like long dated treasuries or like S and P 500, you know, it's not going to be as easy as it has been, which, you know, pros and cons. I mean, it would have been great to, to ride the, the, that crazy bull market over 40 plus years, 
but um, we may not get that opportunity, but we may get the opportunity to, you know, dive deep into Bitcoin. And I mean, COVID was especially crazy, right? Like we saw like, you know, the world seemed to be ending at certain points. Um, you know, governments overreacted in a very big way, taking away a lot of personal freedom. And, you know, the markets ripped, the markets went down a lot and then they ripped. I remember following Bitcoin, right? We were, I guess, coming up on the May 2020 halving, and then we had March 2020 Bitcoin ripped. I remember like seeing 3K Bitcoin during March and I was like, wow, what what is going on? Like, this is like pretty crazy. And that was obviously when NASDAQ was crashing, S&P 500 was crashing. And then all of a sudden we basically had just, you know, the Fed go bonanza, the federal government go bonanza with physical stimulus. And then we were off to the races. And, you know, Dave Portnoy had his show that stocks only go up at that point. Bitcoin was only going up and then... Later that summer, I guess we had Michael Saylor, you know, put out a press release that he just bought like a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And then that was the uh, kind of the catalyst for the bull run. So, yeah, it's, you know, it was a 2020 was a crazy year. 2021 was, you know, an awesome bull market. And then 2022, we saw, you know, the, the opposite side of the bull market. And it was a, a tough time for people in Bitcoin and especially a tough time for for Bitcoin miners. Yeah. And I mean, the, it, it is an interesting time. I mean, you're, you're working at obviously one of the bigger uh, Bitcoin mining companies, uh, you know, as far as uh, I guess the United States goes. So uh, on that note, I mean, we're kind of seeing, uh, I mean, it's, I know it's like you're relatively new working in the space, but this is like the first bear market in Bitcoin where the hash rate has kind of continually gone up. So, um, you know, I guess overall, how are you guys viewing this, um, you know, this kind of, uh, I guess, market conditions? Uh, obviously, I mean, it seems bullish from like a pleb, but just on the outside, just kind of like looking at these generic things. But, um, you know, it does seem like it's been putting a lot of strain on some mining companies. So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, in your view, how, how do you think things are going? And, uh, you know, do you kind of, I guess, can see this trend as, uh, you know, hash rate kind of continuing to go up? you know, obviously bearing like something like a major like China or something else banning it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it it confuses a lot of people, right? Because you're like, okay, Bitcoin in 2021 was trading at $69,000 near its peak. And Bitcoin, you know, went down to $16,000 uh, fall or, or winter of 2022, or I guess fall. Um and and hash rate you know still went up during that time we had like a small minor capitulation like a maybe during the summer of of 2022 and then like maybe during the fall or winter of 2022 but generally speaking like hash rate is continuously trended up and we're pr pretty much right now at an all-time high um i think like one thing that's interesting that a lot of people don't really understand is like okay if the price of bitcoin is falling we still have all of these like data centers or Bitcoin mining facilities that are currently built out and people are still building them out, right? So even the ones that are, are currently built out, people might have older or mid-generation Bitcoin ASICs running at those facilities. So these could be machines that take in the same amount of power as a very new generation machine, but produce maybe half as much hash rate. So the simple act of, you know, selling that machine and then buying a new generation ASIC and getting it plugged in the, in the exact same rack space is going to make hash rate go up. Right. Um, and again, I think it's been tough for miners, but it's really been tough for like over leveraged miners that had very poor risk management. Right. If you bought ASICs for $12,000 and you bought them all on credit, that wasn't necessarily like the best business strategy that you could have possibly employed. It would have been great if Bitcoin went to 100,000. I mean, we all would have been raking in money, but that didn't happen. And Bitcoin went from 69,000 to 16,000. And so a lot of people that, you know, got overly aggressive, got, you know, wrecked or destroyed. And, you know, the people that had a conservative, you know, business and, you know, recognize that Bitcoin does go through these very extreme bull and bear cycles. And, you know, I think generally speaking, Bitcoin's about survival, right? So if, if you can survive the bear market, you're going to be around to benefit during the bull market. And the bull markets are, are pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of miners got wiped out, but a lot of the miners that, that remain and a lot of miners that are still coming into the space, you know, are operating profitably, right? Like if you have cheap electricity and you buy new generation Bitcoin ASICs, you're going to be running a pretty, pretty good business, even at today's levels. Yes, you got the halving coming up. And yes, you know, you 
Bitcoin can always go down further. But it's like if you're bullish on Bitcoin and you think, you know, the price of Bitcoin is going to go up and you recognize the idea that for hash rate to double, you have to like, you know, a ton of energy needs to get plugged into all these machines. A ton of data, Bitcoin mining facilities need to get built out. A ton of ASICs need to get manufactured. You know, it's there's a lot of real world physical constraints on growing hash rate like exponentially at this point. And Bitcoin's price, as you and I probably think, can go exponential and, and it can go exponential in relatively short order. I don't know when it's going to go exponential. Maybe it won't be until after the 2024 halving or macro conditions get better. But I think eventually it's going to go exponential once more. And so I think uh, summing all that up, I think Bitcoin miners, you know, over leveraged ones, the ones that took on a lot of risk, they got wrecked. Uh, the ones that have a conservative operating model and, and played, you know, bought the new generation ASICs and have cheap energy expenses, they're still doing decent and they're still expanding their operations. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's not, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world by any means. Yeah, no. And I, and I totally get what you're saying. And it, it, there's definitely been a lot of blood when it comes to, you know, Bitcoin miners and it, it's not an easy business to say the least. And, uh, but I kind of want to talk about, you know, the, the, obviously the upcoming having, and, uh, you know, I guess the scenarios around that, right. There's been a, you know, uh, like you mentioned, there's, you know, essentially you could unplug an old miner and kind of plug in a new one. And it seems like there's kind of a lot of development when it comes to, you know, new mining machines and everything like that. Um, so uh, I, I guess, you know, you saw last, I, I guess, bull run, you know, kind of a kind of uh, miners doing what you described, taking out loans either against their miners or against Bitcoin and purchasing new miners. Um and that ended up kicking them kind of in the tail. Uh, do you kind of see, like, I guess, like, like you said, like some of the miners that have come into the space or maybe, uh, you know, that have been able to manage some of these waves that Bitcoin normally goes through when it comes to the price action. Do you kind of, I guess, foresee that not ever really occurring, like that kind of market conditions um, where, you know, people are almost like, I guess, FOMOing into to Bitcoin miners in a sense? Uh, do you, I, or do you think... Uh, I guess, uh, I mean, obviously, it's, it's really hard to predict when it comes to, you know, human reaction, and everything like that. But it seems like so many new people are still coming into the area that there could be some effect where, you know, it, it'll be similar to what we saw during the first run up when we saw our not first run up, but the latest run up where we saw it up, run up to 69K. And everybody thinks, you know, at this time, it's going to be somebody that uh, or something that maybe runs up to 420K or, you uh, you know, 500,000 and then, you know, it doesn't quite get there and it ends up burning a lot more miners. So long, long question short, but do you think people have uh, essentially like learned the lesson to avoid mistakes like that in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I've asked people about this and thought about it sometime. I think it'll go both ways, right? I mean, I think people in the industry that, you know, rode too close to the sun and, and, and had some issues and now have some scars are probably going to be a lot more cautious next time around. However, I also think that when the next Bitcoin bull run does come around, it's going to be, you know, another 10 X and in, in users, another 10 X in price. It's going to be another wave of adoption. And it's going to be a bunch of people that may not have learned their scars. And it may be people just, you know, that have been in the space for a while. They recognize the hypes here. So like, let's capitalize and try to, you know, go as leveraged long as we possibly can and hope it keeps going up. So I think we'll see a mix of, of, of different business strategies, right? Like we'll, we'll see maybe more people deploy like the clean spark model of like selling a lot of Bitcoin when the market's hot and then, you know, buying into cheap ASICs when the market's uh, in a bear market like now, or like it has been over the last 12 months or so. Um, so maybe we'll see like a larger percentage of the market be, conservative and be kind of have really good risk management but i still think we're going to see like a, a decent chunk of the market or the industry like be degen leverage long because it's still going to be like the i mean ai is a perfect example right now we're seeing like nvidia go up you know significantly um and i think you know it's and there's some truth to it but it's also like it's a lot of hype and people are going to keep if there's hype someone's going to be raising money and trying to capitalize on the hype. So I don't think it's going to go away, but I do think there will be more conservative operators in the future. 
Yeah, I, I, I hear you as well. But, uh, you know, you did mention NVIDIA and I kind of want to dive into their like current market conditions. Right. I mean, you know, it, it seems like there is still some delusion in the market. Right. So I guess what depending on what metric you look at, I mean, I think there's really like two schools of thought. If you're a rear word, word looking kind of person and you look at like the previous statistics when it comes to unemployment, like GDP, like all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really seem like we're in a recession, but if you kind of take a peek under the hood, right, uh, credit card uh, debt is at an all-time high, uh, personal savings is at extreme low, student loan repayment still hasn't hit yet, um, you know, obviously we've seen massive amounts of inflation, so, um, you know, if you're kind of forward-looking, you think we're either in a recession now or we're going to get there sometime soon, so, um, you know, I, in your eyes, where do you kind of see where we're at? And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it kind of broad there. Yeah, I think you you kind of phrased it very well, the, kind of the current state of where markets are, right? I've seen that chart of like housing prices and like the mortgage payment relative to like the rent and showing like how overvalued houses are for the current level of interest rates and just the current median price of, of homes in the United States. And so, yeah, it seems like we're kind of like on the cusp of like falling off a cliff. Um, but also like, you gotta, you gotta realize that, okay, we just raised the debt ceiling. Right. So now the, the federal government can, can maybe, you know, start, start spending to an extreme amount at some point. And, you know, I think eventually like if, if markets start to just slide or slide further, the fed's going to, you know, pause and maybe eventually resume QE and turn off the QT. And then we could be off to the races again. So I think maybe people underestimate, you know, or maybe the markets like, you know, saying like, Hey, things look bad, but things, you know, monetary and physical policy policy can switch really quickly. So like, we got to get long anyways, like we can't really, be in be in a lot of cash right now so maybe that's kind of what i think is happening um like it could get really bad and like it's kind of set up to get really bad but the market's kind of like calling bluff on like the u.s government and the fed and just saying like you know there's no way like you're gonna let us slide into like a great depression type scenario even though that's like kind of what the numbers may look like but you know we're just gonna stay along and hope that you bail us out like you have done for the past 40 so years or so yeah, so you brought up the Fed and Jerome Powell too. So I kind of want to get into that. Obviously, there's uh, you know hiking interest rates at an you know extreme pace, the fastest pace in history. Uh, Powell's kind of lined out that you know his uh, I guess I don't know if I, I, idle is the right word, but the person he kind of looks to in his strategy is Volcker, who did the same strategy essentially, just raise interest rates at an extreme rate to essentially shock the system to bring down that inflation. Um, you know, obviously, this previous, uh, you know, inflationary cycle that we're, we're going in, if you want to call it that, isn't all monetary, right? I mean, obviously, we did print a shit ton of money, like over 60% of the, the money supply was printed in like, a, you know, 18 month period, I think. Um, and, uh, but, you know, the world also shut down for like months at a time, right when it came to COVID, right? So there was a, a lot of supply chain issues all that kind of stuff kind of, uh, you know, caused this, you know, this uh, inflation cocktail, so to speak, that has made uh, the conditions where it's at. So, um, you know, on, on the job with the Fed, um, you know, you, you did point out that, that the market's kind of causing calling for this Fed pivot, right? I mean, uh, they're calling for it and, and essentially staying long. Um, but it seems like Powell's kind of calling, uh, you know, or sticking to his uh, word, you know, where he's like, saying higher for longer, there's going to be more pain, he's looking for unemployment to increase a lot of these various factors. Um, so, you know, in, in your eyes, I guess one, how do you think the job that Powell is doing so far? And uh, I guess, what, what's your predictions on the way forward? Do you think that he's going to continue raising? Or, uh, you know, I, I guess, at a pause? Or do you think, uh, you know, are you in the camp that you see a pivot coming sometime soon? Yeah, it's a good question one on the job that he's doing so far. I mean, I think it's nearly an impossible job. I think, you know, I'm a big believer in free markets in general and trying to centrally control the price of money, I think is kind of like, 
you know, not the point of free markets, right? Like it's, you wouldn't think it's a good idea to control the price of any other good or service in the economy. But for some reason, you know, economists and academics think it's a great idea to be able to centrally control the price of money itself, which is arguably probably the most important price in all markets in, in the entire world. Um, so I think he's doing a pretty much an impossible job. And I think, you know, it's not something that humans, one human or a group of humans should be trying to centrally control. It should be more of like a natural, you know, free market state. And I don't really know that. I think that looks more like under Bitcoin standard that might look better. Um, and, and I think if we let free markets run with the dollar system, like the system would probably like collapse pretty quickly. Um, so I think he's doing you know, a good job compared to, for what he's the, the job that he's given, but it's not an easy job by any means. What's coming up for the fed. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't really know. Um, I think I, I always like from my macro perspective, I don't like to, you know, pretend that I know exactly like what the fed's next move is going to be and like where markets are going to go in the next three to six months, because I really don't know. I mean, I like listening to Lynn Alden and, and other like macro strategists and I think they have like really good thoughts. Um, and that would probably be like my, my go-to base case. But my general thesis is the dollar is, is a currency. It's an, it's a debt-based monetary tool and it's designed to debase over time. And so I don't necessarily know again, like what's going to happen next three to six months. I think maybe there could be like significant downward pressure on stocks. Maybe it could also be downward pressure on Bitcoin, but I do know in the long run that there's going to be exponentially more dollars created forever. Um, it's just a matter of like, when is that going to happen? It may take six months. It may take one year. It may take two years. And I do know contrasting the dollar debt-based monetary system we have Bitcoin, right? Where we know that, you know, it's it's the least uncertain monetary tool that humans have ever discovered. Meaning, you know, 21 million is is fairly immutable. There's nothing more immutable than 21 million Bitcoin. We know the halving is going to occur in 2024. We know there's not one group, you know, one human or one group of humans really that can, you know, change that fact that the halving is going to occur next year. And so it's kind of just this tool and this accounting system that humans have discovered and we can't change it. And so now we have to adapt to it. And so we, you know, the dollar system again with, with the groups of humans in charge of it and just like the natural incentives of politics and central banking and, and democracies, I think it's designed to debase forever. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin is basically the exact opposite of that. And so long-term highly bullish on Bitcoin, you know, not very bullish, obviously on fiat currencies, Short term, you know, I'm not, I, I don't really know. Um, I would say, I would suggest, you know, I always like to say, like, have some cash in case, you know, stocks uh, in Bitcoin like do get hammered because um, you want to be a buyer of last resort. You want to be able to stack like the massive liquidation candles like we saw in March 2020. But obviously, you know, it's not a, you need, you definitely don't want to be holding a large, a significantly large cash position. You want to be in real assets and specifically real assets that can't be debased. And I think Bitcoin is one of the best real assets that you can be in. Yeah, man, I love that. I, lo I love that so much. But um, one question that, that kind of like or one thought that kind of, I guess, sparks my mind through all of this is like, all right, you know, Obviously, the long term, right, we're seeing the debasement of fiat currency, essentially, as we're, we're sitting here today, right? I mean, uh, as you said, you know, the fiat currencies are de designed to be debased, which, you know, is a great way to, to put it. But, uh, you know, it, it's been kind of a, I guess, uh, a known fact in the Bitcoin community that isn't really, uh, I guess, like to, to be admitted that that. Bitcoin has been fairly correlated with, you know, growth in tech stocks as it as it lies. But, you know, I, I sent you an article with this like just before we started recording. So I don't know if you got a chance to take a full dive into it. But it seems like Bitcoin has kind of gotten away from uh, correlating correlation of the NASDAQ. So uh, of the NASDAQ 100. So, you know, it, it's fallen to about a point two of the correlation coefficient correlation coefficient where it was about at 0.8 a year ago so it seems like bitcoin's kind of getting away from these growth in tech stocks um as far as like the correlation goes and it's right before you know maybe a potential recession so in all of this and and right before having too so it seems like it's going to be kind of uh you know maybe maybe i'm getting a little bit of, of hopium in me but it seems like it's kind of the the recipe for success in bitcoin so 
Um, you know, I, I know you have the long-term vision of it doing well and everything like that, but, you know, as we're seeing, you know, banks collapse and, and uh, you know, other things like that, kind of bigger macro type events happening in the United States, Bitcoin has kind of been resilient and, you know, maybe even going up on some of those days. So, uh, you know, in your view, how do you view as, as Bitcoin's reacted to what has happened in the past, um, I guess, what, six months or so, um, you know, and, and it's, I, I guess, resiliency, even though it's kind of like floated around here in this 25 to 30K range? Yeah. Yeah, I, I dove a little bit into that article. I saw like basically the NASDAQ, you know, over the last month or so, I, I guess has actually been doing pretty well and Bitcoin's kind of been flat. So it's kind of not, it's not necessarily great that the correlation is is not there because NASDAQ's been going up and like specifically, I guess, mainly like stocks like NVIDIA are driving the NASDAQ and like mega cap growth tech is is kind of what's driving the NASDAQ. And then Bitcoin is kind of like, you know, everything else, like the, you know, the bottom, you know, 99% of the S&P 500 companies, which are more flat. Um, and so is Bitcoin kind of flattened down. Um, I, I kind of have a, maybe a unique opinion on, on like, you know, a lot of people say like Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset, or they'd like to say like Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset to like NASDAQ. I kind of take the other view that I, I, I think Bitcoin is highly correlated to NASDAQ. I think Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is kind of like a gauge for global liquidity. And I think that that's kind of what NASDAQ has been, you know, over the past few years. And I think, you know, if NASDAQ does really good, then I think Bitcoin's going to do really good. And I don't really expect that trend to like reverse. And, and it kind of, to me, it kind of makes sense. Like if the global economy is like completely falling apart, I don't expect like NASDAQ to do good. And I also don't expect Bitcoin to do good per se. I think Bitcoin's a good place to be. Like, you know, that, if the global economy is falling apart, you know you have no counterparty risk. If you take self-custody of your Bitcoin, you know you still have like your share out of 21 million. But also like if the global economy is falling apart and like no company is like profitable, then like what is money isn't really a good tool to to use anyways. Like if we if no business is making any money and like everything's falling apart, then like there's not really a point of money. So I think like the bubble has to like keep going and going. And I think, you know. The bubble is kind of like a gauge for global liquidity. And I think, again, if if Bitcoin is a pretty good measure of global liquidity and and kind of just like global global liquidity and like global productivity, like being able to for, for businesses to produce goods and services in like what they think is like a profitable manner, I think like that's really good for Bitcoin. And so uh, for that trend, you know, I, I, I kind of expect like Bitcoin and NASDAQ in the long, at least medium term to like, continue together uh, as like a gauge for global liquidity. I do think like the banking crisis that you mentioned highlighted a pretty clear value proposition for Bitcoin, right? Like your your average American actually realized like, hey, like my money, my money, my checking account, you know, they don't actually have my cash, you know, sitting in a vault at the bank. It's like an IOU, which is really backed by like someone's mortgage or some corporate debt out there which is like kind of risky, um, someone's mortgage, especially like when the economy starts to fall apart. And so it's like, okay, um, you know, I, if you want to hold like real assets and you want to make sure you actually have those assets, you don't actually have it with a bank. So it's like, okay, do you want to take the cash and like put it under your mattress? Well, not really, because, you know, like if things get really bad, they're just going to print more money. So it's like, okay, I can't do that. What about this Bitcoin thing? I can buy it. I know there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And then on top of that, I don't have to hold it at a bank. I can take self-custody of it. So I know under both scenarios, if, you know, the economy does fall apart, I still have, you know, the, the one out of 21 million or that share out of 21 million. And then I also know that like, you know, the natural resp response to the economy falling apart will be, you know, the Fed going berserk and printing money. And I don't have to worry about debasement on the other end. So you have no counterparty risk with Bitcoin and you also have no debasement risk or you have no dilution risk. And so I think it's kind of the best of both worlds. I think more people are figuring it out. And, and I think over time, more and more people will figure it out, whether it's from the counterparty risk issue with a certain bank or it's with the debasement risk with you know the Fed or other central banks around the world. Yeah. And I, and I agree a hundred percent, you know, I think it's uh, you know, it was really eye opening. I think just to, to a lot of Americans in general, that seeing that uh, you know, that the bank failures that we, that we went under because 
you know, I think we, you know, if you look at a chart from, I think it's since 1990-ish or 19, uh, late 1980s, every single regional bank or the amount of regional banks in the United States has been de decreasing every single year. And so it's been a trend that's been kind of continuing, but generally speaking, it's, it's not these banks failing and then getting scooped up like by the big four-ish players in the United States. It's usually they just get bought out and people don't have to worry about losing their money. But I think, you know, now we're kind of in an interesting time where, you know, a lot of people have money in these banks. There's obviously the lot of uh, there's a lot of spread of information there. And, uh, you know, people can essentially go on their phone and move money from one place to another and cause this kind of bank run scenario. Um, but, you know, like, like you've kind of pointed out, right? I mean, since the 2020 enactment, there hasn't really been that, that need for, uh, I, I guess, uh, the bank to hold on to all your money, where obviously in Bitcoin, everything's verifiable. So I think, you know, although this is bad short term for the overall macro environment in the United States, I think the bank failures, like you said, are kind of waking people up to Bitcoin. But I do think the one thing that, that is intimidating to a lot of people is the self-custody aspect because they've kind of been programmed their whole life to be like, hey, you know, put your money in the safe or put your money in this bank. It's going to be safe and you don't have to worry about it. You know, the bank will take care of it. Well, now, like people are kind of having to realize like, oh, shit, like I have to take some personal responsibility. Um, so do you kind of, I guess, foresee that being as like a big hurdle for maybe some newbies getting into to Bitcoin as we like move forward here? Yeah. That's another great question. And I definitely think that's been a somewhat of a problem in the space, right? Like we see most people, their first experience with Bitcoin is logging into Coinbase or signing up with Coinbase and not even really knowing what a real Bitcoin self-custodial wallet is. And I don't think that's great for Bitcoin. It's not because I think Bitcoin doesn't really work if we all hold our Bitcoin at one centralized custodian, right? Which is not the case, right? I mean, a large, large majority of coins are not held at exchanges. Um, and like data providers like Glassnode kind of can help reveal that. And the trend I think is is people waking up to this because of this, you know, fact of counterparty risk. But I do think entrepreneurs are out there building really cool products to help people self-custody their Bitcoin. I mean, three companies that come to mind, we have Unchained Capital and we have OnRamp, and then we also have Thea. All of these are like collaborative multi-sig uh, uh, self-custodial solutions. So it's like, or OnRamp is not self-custodial, but it's like a collaborative multi-sig where you can have, you know, multiple different entities that hold your Bitcoin. And so you don't really have to think about it. And so all of these are much better than like holding your Bitcoin at Coinbase and like throwing it in a black box where like you don't really know where they hold it. You don't know how they hold it. You don't know if they hold it. Whereas those other platforms and and, and Unchain and they are, are, are great self-custodial or, or collaborative custodial uh, platforms where like you can literally like, it's more of like the Coinbase experience, but you still get that like security. So it's like, you still kind of, you know, have Unchained or Thea holding your hand and like walking you through the process and like kind of backing up an extra key in case you missed it or in case you don't really know what you're doing. Um, but they make it like still super simple for like anyone to, to, to really take ownership of their Bitcoin and take personal responsibility without, you know, being super technical by any means. So I think it, I think we're going to see a lot more products like that get developed. And I think that's going to be, you know, really good for Bitcoin. And it's going to be really good for people that, you know, had Bitcoin on BlockFi or had Bitcoin on Celsius or had Bitcoin on FTX or Mt. Gox and got wrecked. Whereas, you know, if, if new entrants, you know, use something like a collab collaborative multi-sig vault, I think they're going to be well better off. Bitcoin's going to be well better off. And just the entire ecosystem is going to be well better off. So I think it is a problem that people use custodial solutions. And I think, you know, the tides are turning. And I think FTX and Celsius and Blackfire were a big wake-up call. And the banking, you know, crisis was a big wake-up call for people to, you know, at least take some form of personal responsibility. And you you can, you know, work with partners and, and products to really help you do that in a way that's, you know, not super intimidating, like just holding your own private key, like directly on a Trezor or cold card. 
Yeah, that, that's a fair point. But, um, you know, with the bank failures too, right? I mean, we talk about how, you know, you don't necessarily think your money is safe. Um, but, you know, I, I think, as you mentioned, like BlockFi, Coinbase, or not Coinbase, but BlockFi, Celsius, um, and FTX, like those failures, I do think that that has intimidated a few people to, to kind of get into this space. Um, obviously, you know, kind of the tides are turning. It seems like, you know, the shitcoin casinos in the United States, there's going to be a lot of regulation kind of coming down on that. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, Coinbase has even talked about moving their headquarters away from the United States because there hasn't really been any clarity on, uh, you know, crypto regulation. So um, on that, you know, obviously you work for, for a Bitcoin company. But, uh, you know, where do you kind of, I guess, see the, the regulations um, kind of going in a sense? Do you uh, are, are you following that pretty closely? Uh, and is it something that, I guess, worries you maybe in the short term that, uh, you know, the United States government might kind of come down hard on on Bitcoin companies when they don't really, I guess, understand Bitcoin fully just yet? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I have been following Bitcoin mining regulation closely, and I can talk more about that. As far as broad crypto and, and Bitcoin regulation, I, I may not have any good insights for you. Uh, but I do know that there was basically two anti-Bitcoin mining bills that were kind of in the works, one in Texas and one at a federal level. One was the federal level, one was the 30% proof of work mining uh, tax that uh, was you know being passed around and was potentially going to be included in the raising the debt ceiling uh, legislation that that ended up passing, but that ended up getting removed. I know Warren Davidson, who I believe is a congressman or senator, uh, he you know announced it on Twitter that that got removed and is now dead in the water that for for now at least. So that's great on 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 preventing an extra tax on Bitcoin miners in the United States. The second form of leg legislation was the anti-Bitcoin mining bill in Texas which was basically preventing Bitcoin miners from enrolling in these demand response programs, which is basically like grid stability programs in a very short term. And it was, it was, you know, kind of trying to, to really stop, you know, how a lot of Bitcoin miners in Texas were making, you know, a lot of extra money and helping balance energy grids. And that was, you know, at first it looked like that bill was going nowhere, but then it turns out that the bill was actually like gaining a lot of steam um, but that also got stopped uh, dead in the water, and it doesn't look like that's going to, you know, potentially ever come back. And so there, there has been some hostile legislation to Bitcoin miners in the U.S., but it's not been passed, and it seems like we're we're definitely trending in the right direction on like whether you know m more stuff like that will come across, you know, desk of, of congressmen and senators doesn't seem like it will anytime soon but maybe it will um, but it seems like we've made some really good leaps and strides recently in the bitcoin mining space but yeah i mean also i for coinbase moving like generally speaking coinbase moving you know operations or like building a derivatives exchange or whatever they're trying to do like offshore i mean it makes a lot of sense i feel like you know the u.s hasn't really like the best place to build like a Bitcoin or crypto derivatives exchange, obviously, as we've seen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wish, you know, the U.S. would be more open to allowing people to to do things like that and like showing, I guess, maybe doing regulation around like forcing people, forcing exchanges to like uh, show that they like actually have the Bitcoin that they hold. Right. Like I think Texas passed a, a law somewhat recently requiring like any exchanges built in Texas you know, show that they actually own Bitcoin if, if they give you a Bitcoin IOU. I think that's something that, you know, is good for Bitcoin. I think it's good for the users of any exchange that it happens to be built in Texas. Um, but it will be very interesting to see like how the, you know, legislative landscape develops, you know, over the next five, 10 years. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm pretty bullish. I don't think like anything super crazy is going to happen. And one of the reasons why I, I say that is because I think we... Bitcoiners are kind of like the like intrinsic minority, meaning like every like Bitcoiners are kind of like single issue voters, where if you have a large chunk of your portfolio in Bitcoin and someone's trying to like pass pro Bitcoin legislation or anti Bitcoin legislation, you're pretty much always going to vote on like the pro Bitcoin side and you're not and you're going to definitely not vote for the anti Bitcoin guy. And whereas like, you know, that which may be like this may be like half a percent of the entire global like U.S. population. But um, 
the other side of, of, of that, you know, segment of the population, the 99.5% or probably more, the non-Bitcoiners, they don't really care, right? Like if, if a candidate talks about Bitcoin or doesn't talk about Bitcoin, like they're not really going to, they're not going to care if someone's anti-Bitcoin. They're not really going to care if someone's pro-Bitcoin. Pro so I think the incentive for politicians, and this will become, I think, in my opinion, more uh, obvious over the next you know five years, is the incentive is for politicians to be very pro-Bitcoin because that's how you grab this new segment of the voting base that may not have previously voted, but that's how you grab their attention and you grab their votes. And like, they're going to vote for you if you're pro Bitcoin and your you know, opposing candidate is not pro Bitcoin and you're not going to lose any votes from going pro Bitcoin. So I think this is something that we're kind of already seeing, right? Like we saw like Robert Kennedy starting to talk about Bitcoin. We saw DeSantis, you know, passing that like anti CBDC law in Florida. He's talking a little bit about Bitcoin. So I think that like they're learning and they're starting to catch on that like, hey, like this is like a still very small percentage of the population. But like, you know, if, if elections come down to like 50.1% and 49.9%, then it's like you might this 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 small portion of the population might be enough to like put you over the line. And I think, you know, if Bitcoin goes another bull run when we see which potentially could happen around the next presidential election, it could become become even more obvious when a larger percentage of you know the population is a Bitcoiner or, or someone that at least holds or has a lot of uh, financial exposure to Bitcoin. So I think it's going to become more of an issue, and I, I'm not necessarily super worried about you know negative legislation coming down on Bitcoin, at least in the U.S. Yeah, that's a fair point. And yeah, you, you know, you just you mentioned Robert Kennedy. There was Vivek there as well, another presidential candidate who, uh, you know, was was at the Bitcoin conference and having a, a talk about that as well. So, I mean, I there's definitely politicians like all over the place. Um, you know, the, I think last year around this time, there was a bunch jumping into Twitter spaces and kind of doing that, you know, whether it was like some Senate race. So I think, you know, as elections go on, Bitcoin is going to be more and more of a topic on that's on the ballot. So I think you're 100 percent right there. And it's kind of, uh, you know, becoming a growing kind of uh, talking conversation. Right. I mean, and, and people can really tell whether or not you've done your homework or not. Or I guess there's an insider, so to speak, on your in your camp who's kind of, uh, you know, helping uh, educate you on Bitcoin and kind of, uh, you know, what, what's going on there. Right. Obviously, you know, Robert Kennedy did a great job in his speech um, for you know, just laying it all out. And I think his speech was very well received at the conference as well. Um, but I know you're limited on time. So before we uh, before we go here, I do want to ask you about, uh, you know, the, the upcoming having, you know, we, you kind of talked about this and the, the upcoming presidential election. We kind of got into it a little bit uh, before, but uh, I do have Luke in the crowd who, who's in the live chat. He's asking you why uh, you think that the having is not priced in yet. And uh, why are macro analysts uh, going to be blow, blown away when it comes to, uh, I guess, the having price? Maybe not next year exactly, right? Because we saw a delay um, when it came to the 2020 having. Uh, but, you know, do, do you think the having's priced in or uh, do you think we're going to, I guess, ride this thing all the way up uh, come maybe next year uh, around this time? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Uh, probably could talk about it for a long time, but... High level, I definitely don't think the having is priced in. I definitely think macro, and I don't think like the having is like the core reason that Bitcoin necessarily goes on major bull runs. I think Bitcoin havings is more of like catalysts that like usher in the next bull run, and and they, so far they've happened to coincide with like you know extremely nice macro tailwinds, which is obviously great. But I don't think the having is priced in because I don't necessarily think it can be priced in. If if that makes sense, so like. If we wanted to price in the Bitcoin having today, we would basically like the market would attempt to be bidding up the price of Bitcoin. But when you start bidding up the price of Bitcoin, then the dollar amount of, of miners selling Bitcoin into the market starts also going up because, you know, there's still going to be that set number of Bitcoin mined per day. So like for a crazy example, say the price of Bitcoin is now at a million dollars. We would see so much capital flooding into mining infrastructure. We would see so many miners being built out. We would see these miners likely at least selling to cover their operating expenses. And to me, it would clearly show that, hey, $1 million per Bitcoin today with a 6.25 Bitcoin block subsidy is like not sustainable whatsoever for like the current level of adoption. 
And so what we would see is the price probably comes back down to a more like sustainable level where we can sustain a certain amount of mining investment and a certain amount of minor mining sell pressure on a day-to-day -day basis. And then when we, so if you know, so that's basically what I'm saying, like you can't price in the having before the actual having or before all these future havings. And then secondly, when the having actually does occur, what happens is you see the weakest miners get knocked off the network. So the weakest miners are those operating old or mid-generation Bitcoin ASICs, or they're operating at very high energy expenses. And so typically what happens is we see hash rate drop, we see mining difficulty drop, and the weakest miners are the ones that get knocked off the network. Now, the weakest miners are those miners that are selling the most Bitcoin and, and specific, specifically selling the most dollars amount of Bitcoin, right? And so when these weakest miners get knocked off the network, the day-to-day -day sell pressure from Bitcoin miners is like significantly smaller. It could be you know more than 50% smaller if it's a significant miner capitulation, even if you know hash rate doesn't even drop by 50%. It could just be knocking out the weakest miners who are selling all their Bitcoin. And then the only miners remaining are those that are well capitalized, have new generation ASICs and have very low energy expenses. And so yeah, I think the halving is not priced in. I think what we'll see is it will act as like a catalyst, you know, in 2024. It won't be an immediate like, catalyst but it will take a few months to to really since you know some new supply is kind of a flow it takes time it's not like it's something that you know happens overnight um and so once that flow dries up and the supply of available coins you know liquid coins kind of dries up we start to see the price slowly tick up and then you know bitcoin has a history of when the price starts slowly ticking up and we have some nice macro tailwinds uh we get another parabolic bull run so yeah, I don't think the having's priced in, and I, you know, if I'm if I was a betting man, I don't expect much for 2023, but I do expect a, you know, pretty big year for at least the later half of 2024. There we go, man. I love it. So Joe, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, you got me jacked up, man. I, I'm ready to go, 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 smash by some corn, dude. You got to get it at these cheap prices while while I can. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and uh, what all you got going on? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, definitely recommend people go smash buy some Bitcoin ASICs on the Blockware Marketplace. So if you do want to check that out, go to marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com. Uh, if you want to talk to me or you want to find me, I'm on Twitter, uh, Joe Burnett on Twitter. My handle is III Capital. Uh, feel free to DM me. Uh, and I'm happy to, I, I read them all. I typically respond to them all. So, you know, feel free to DM me. Um, I think it'd be, you know, awesome to hear from you guys. Yeah, great stuff. And I'll put all that in the show notes as well. So Joe, thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate it.